you know, um, I think that a good deal of the faculty here could easily, you know, be working at a research one institution, top tier schools, uh, but geographically, this is where we choose to live. And we've got this wonderful institution here where we can provide uh, services to our community and, and education to the students. Welcome to WCSU 411, a podcast about interesting people and achievements at Western Connecticut State University. I'm Paul Steinmetz, and today we are recording on the Midtown campus in the basement of Whitehall with Dr. Gabe Lomas, a professor of educational psychology. After the interview with Dr. Lomas, Student Government Association Vice President Barbara Viegas will talk about the campus events that are coming up in the next week or two. But first, here's Gabe Lomas. So, Gabe, you have done podcasts. You were kind of a pioneer in podcasting here at uh, Westcon. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't give myself that much credit, but I did do a few. <laughs> and uh, it was back kind of in the Stone Age, right? Where they didn't have, uh, not that your age, I'm not saying that. It's that uh, the technology wasn't quite as up to date as it is now. Absolutely. But why'd you quit? It's so much fun. Oh, I, 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 I'm not quitting. I just put a little, a little, Pause. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've had a lot going on. Good. So you, you're going to start a podcast. I'll, you can... I'll get back to it. All right, good. Do it at a time or choose a subject that doesn't uh, get more listeners than my podcast. All right. I'm very particular about who else is allowed to podcast. I'd be surprised if I have any downloads <laughs> at all. <laughs> we'll see about that. Especially, I mean, you're kind of a, a um, superstar here at Westcon. Now, you were just awarded a $1.8 million federal grant, which is the biggest academic uh, grant that Westcon has ever gotten. So congratulations. Thanks. Can you tell us what you're going to do with that? Well, it's a training grant. So 60% of all that money has to go direct out to students when they go into their field placements. It, um, when our students go into field placement, they tend to... Um, have to struggle a lot you know they'll um sleep on uh their, their parents couch <laughs> something like that just to kind of make their make the ends meet so this funding is to help them you know defray some of their living expenses so that they can um, dedicate more time to the field placement a, a lot of students will struggle you know it's 600 hours in the field and if you add that up that's um that's a full-time job for one semester or a part-time job for two semesters so most of our students are doing it part time and then they will work, you know, in retail or food service or something like that to try to make ends meet. And so we're just really lucky that the grant was available at this point and it's going to help our students for the next four years to not have to struggle so much when they're in field placement. Mm -hmm. And you should be able to help more students, uh, bring more students into the program. Is that right? Or Yeah, absolutely. Right? Uh, one of the things that we're re required to do is to increase the number of mental health providers in the area. So we currently accept 30 students a year, and we will increase that to 40 students a year. We're going to be at a ratio if we don't hire another faculty member, so the funding will cover the cost of another faculty member for three years. That's great. And what will the students, what do the students do when they're out in their field study? Well, you know, typically they're, they're just getting their, their field experience with the, with the um, um, a mental health counselor if they're in the clinical track or a school counselor in the school track. Um, but the, this grant is a little bit unique in that we are required to put, place some students in integrated care for, uh, facilities, which is a whole new model. It really, I mean, I think some people may be familiar with it 
if you're in the field, and some people may have experienced it when you go to your primary care doctor, but um, it's not it's a it's very atypical. Like when you think of behavioral health, you think of going to a private therapist. Usually, you go to an office somewhere in an office building. Uh, some people run a practice out of their home or something like that, but it's usually just behavioral health practitioners. But in an effort to reduce stigma, mental health stigma, into into act, I mean, there's a lot of great reasons. Stigma is one of the huge ones, but it also Another um, um, benefit of, of having counselors in primary care is that we catch in mental health problems earlier. So when you're constantly screening for depression, anxiety, substance abuse, things like that, you'll catch it much earlier and get treatment earlier, which, which studies show uh, uh, that um, we can reduce um, not only costs, but also mental illness down the road and, and perhaps... Um, reduce some of the um, consequences of, of more severe mental illness if we catch it early. So catch, you know, reducing stigma is a big deal, I think, and then and catching mental, mental illness early, it's also it, it's a big deal, too. So the grant's going to really help to advance our region in that area. And our primary, do you <clears throat> expect primary care physicians to be receptive to that? You know, it's not just Westcon that will be doing it. SAMHSA, HRSA, all these federal organizations are pushing for it. So uh, there, we, even though I think to a degree we'd be a pioneer, there's, it's already in practice in a few clinics around Connecticut, and I think that we're just going to continue to see it grow. So most primary care providers are probably aware that this is coming, and um, so when we knock on their door to say, let us in, I don't think they'll be surprised. Mm -hmm. And so how will it work actually in practice? Will a, a doctor, I'll go into to see a doctor uh, for my uh, ingrown toenail, they'll <laughs> treat that. And in talking to me, he or she will say, hey, maybe you should talk to this um, behavioral care therapy uh, therapist, uh, behavioral care therapist <laughs> as well, or will that person be in and just checking or does that work? Well, in primary, it, it, it probably we probably won't be in specialized care like you know like like you just suggested. But in in primary care, where we're like in a pediatrician's office or or your family physician's office, typically when you go in, you go in annually, um, and most of the time they'll say, "Here's a clipboard. Update some information for us." And so when you get that clipboard, it's going to have some behavioral health questionnaires on it now. Mm -hmm. So instead of just saying, has your health changed? Are you taking medication? There'll be another form or two on there to say, you know, tell us about your drinking or tell us about your moods. And then that will go into a file for one of our, um, our interns. And our intern will go through it. And, and, and if the scoring on the questionnaires, you know, rates, you know, at a level that it shows concern, they'll reach out to you and say, hey, and I noticed you, you, you answered in this way. Would you like to schedule an appointment and try to catch people earlier? And do people, do you, is your feeling or has research shown that people answer those questionnaires accurately? You know, I think that's still, that's still, um, that's, that's a good question. I think in general people do, and, um, and then it's our job to get into the room with them and kind of say, let's talk about it. And that's where sometimes I think there can be a little bit of resistance. But it's, you know, using some techniques and strategies, we hope that we can, we can win people over and get them into treatment, you know, when it's warranted. And the stigma you talk about, um, I, I'm not referencing any uh, research, but it seems like stigma to mental health um, treatment is still 
a big problem out there, yeah, even abs- though we've been talking about it for a long, long time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really is a big problem and, and it's, it's unfortunate, but I hear it almost every day in my life, you know, when, when people reference uh, seeing a therapist and it's usually kind of a whisper, um, it's still, it's not, it's not um, normalized the way it is if you go see a physician. And so I think uh, we have a, a, a long uphill battle to climb, and I think this is going to give us a big step forward. Is it because of historically uh, people, I don't know, in Danbury, people had the hatter shakes, so they were like the Mad Hatter and made fun of and in ways that uh, people who just had s- serious physical illnesses weren't? Or what's the history with yeah, that? Yeah, you know, there's all kinds of reasons. I mean, I think it's, there's always some sort of there's mystery about behind you know, mental illnesses and, 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 and a lot of misunderstandings. And they're perpetuated today in the media, you know, um, on television and on, and on the news and in movies, you know, that the person with the mental illness is the unpredictable one and, and the criminal. And so, and, and the, the reality is, is, that, is that, that we have a pretty substantial body of literature that addresses mental illness and crime. It, and, and for the most part, the studies are showing that it's a very small fraction. It's not statistically significant, you know, that somebody who with a mental illness is going to commit a crime. So there's, um, there's just a lot of misinformation out there that needs to be addressed in, in, in a good way. And it's very difficult and challenging when we make steps forward and, and sometimes the messages that are put out in the media pull us back. Mm-hmm. Do you think, or I suppose that, uh, one reason that your grant was uh, favorably um, uh, treated was is that somehow somebody in government is saying, uh, including Chris Murphy, who had something to uh, who helped um, pass a federal mental health bill last year, uh, is looking for um, ways to reach out to those criminals or stop the criminals, right, and deal with them before they do that. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that there is an element of that. You know, if we can identify, you know, depression, anxiety, fear, just any kind of any kind of mental health problem early on, we should be able to intervene before somebody does go out and and, and cause uh, cause some sort of a, of a public um, um, disruption. Mm-hmm. So I think that 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 certainly could be a potential um, benefit. Um, there's, there's just a multitude of benefits that I think that will come from, from the grant. The, um, just to hang on that one more second, uh, the, uh, shooter out in Las Vegas who murdered 60 people, um, you know, you've read some, I'm sure you've read some about his background. No one knows exactly what his motive was or really anything about his motive, I guess yet, but, um, he sounded like kind of a loner. Is it possible to reach somebody like that? You know, through the avenues of mental health, I think it'd be very difficult. I think that there would be other more public policy, you know, interventions and preventions that would be in place to help to safeguard against that. And and it's interesting that you brought that up because there is a component of the grant that is um, focused on on crisis response. Um, The the um, all of the students who are in our program who received the grant funds will be required to go through a pretty substantial amount of crisis uh, training and um, as well as uh, at the end of the training we're going to at the end of the first year we're going to have a small conference 
that will we'll bring leaders in the field in crisis and trauma together to, to, um, to meet with our students and stakeholders in the community <clears throat> to address you know, some of the current trends in crisis and trauma uh, treatment. So um, uh, the, 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 a shooting in particular, you know, I think sometimes they're difficult to predict, almost impossible to predict really when it comes to behavioral health perspective. But um, to respond to a situation like that, we have a lot of research and protocols that can help us to do a, a good job with that. And then to treat people from, for trauma afterwards, we have a, a, a good deal of research and a, a body of work there. We just um, have a lot of practitioners at, the, at this point who are not trained in some of those models. And it's a, it's a very different paradigm from the kind of work that we do when, with the standard sort of like um, office-based therapy. You know, crisis response treatment is, very, is a very diff different paradigm. And so bringing in those specific trainers to WestCon is going to be, I feel like, a gift to our community. Mm -hmm. And you've been doing some work on uh, <clears throat> crisis response here in this region already. Yeah, for a long time, actually. I mean, it's part of our... Of our curriculum in our program so uh, I, I was doing it when I was in Texas before I moved here in 2009 and um, I continued to advance the work that I that I started when I moved here and then of course after the um, the shootings of 1214 the shootings in Sandy Hook I um, assembled a crisis team and that um, of school-based practitioners and those those people meet diligently. They're they're very committed to the to the work. So um, every month, um, representatives of 14 school districts come to WestCon, and they have um, a meeting, and it's all focused on crisis and trauma and safety. You know, in the schools, and it's a uh, it's it's. Um, it's always a heavy topic, but it's 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 delightful to, to see them all working together, collaborating with each other, and I think I really wholeheartedly feel that our schools are safer because of that of that experience that we do. Mm -hmm. So they're working on prevention as well as response. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so there's a variety of things that we do in those meetings, but usually it's a professional development. We'll have somebody come and talk, and the talk is an inspiration. You know, it's it, oftentimes. Um, Somebody might talk like, let's say, for example, <clears throat> our speaker last time she spoke um, on working with traumatized students in school. So she had a particular model that she used and she had a good deal of research that she shared with the group. So it was listening to her, but it was also us sharing with each other. So what are you doing at your school district and how are you working with those students and what kind of, um, of hazards or bumps in the road have you experienced and how have you worked through that? And that's when people pull out their notebooks and they're taking notes, constantly learning from each other. And, and in that way, we're also vetting. And so if there's ever another crisis situation in the future that a school district feels like overwhelms their needs, they can look to the team and say, I know that person. That person's qualified and competent and they're my colleague in the field. And they will invite them to their campus to help you know, in the recovery instead of inviting uh, strangers from the community, and certainly we wouldn't have strangers. It'd be people who are who are licensed and vetted. But, but to know the people who are coming to your school makes it just an added layer of of security. Mm -hmm. You know that they're part of your team and that they're going to work towards the same goal. Uh, you know when you have people who c converge on a site, even if they're licensed, sometimes they're not. They don't know your 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 system, mm -hmm. or they may not 
have the specific training to meet your goals and you won't know that unless you've vetted them already so this is i think it's the team has worked in, in a fabulous way together to help us to advance the crisis training in the area and to work more collaboratively as a community it'll really be a quick strike team that can go into uh, any of the any district in the, i guess western connecticut right and yeah, uh, walk yeah. in because they're known and uh, vetted as you say right absolutely and they can work they're available for smaller crises uh, too. So a, a student or a um, teacher uh, passes on time, in an untimely way and it upsets everybody in the school. You might need those services. Or it might be overwhelming for the um, uh, counselors there and they need a help, right? Absolutely. I mean, if it's a, it's a, a crisis is sort of idiosyncratic to, the, to a degree. You know, so I hate to, to call something a small crisis, but mm. the truth is, is how, how many resources do we need and how, how can our resources internally handle that? So a student death, it could, be a, it could be perceived as something as a small crisis for the school district, but it could be something that they could handle. And, but yet a different student may pass away and the effect is so profound that the district feels overwhelmed. And so they might reach out to, to a team of people. And in fact, they have multiple times our team has deployed people to go and help it at a school. And sometimes we're doing simple things like um, that are not direct services, like we might be helping the principal write a letter to the community or, you know, um, just giving consultation and feedback. Like these are the things that you need to be mindful of as you're working with your teachers and or the days to come. Um, or we might be providing a direct service, you know, you might need, they might need six mental health professionals and they only have four. And so they're using two of ours from our team to help, you know, provide a direct service to the, to the parents or the community members or to the, the students themselves. That's a great thing to offer. And it wasn't available before until a few years ago, right? Right. Yeah. We just, we started up, um, you know, it's, it's actually, it's the, the model is, is, has been practiced around the nation in different states, but and in some states it's state law that you have to have this in place. Hmm. And in Connecticut, it's not. There's already, you know, and I don't, I don't blame them. The there, there's a lot of mandates that they put on schools, and it's very challenging to add new <laughs> new ones, you know, especially when there's when there's not a lot of funding to go with the mandates. But um, it it it's something that that really, in my opinion, obviously I, I believe in it, so I I, th I think it should happen. They should be working collaboratively, and um, and yeah, I, th I think it's um, it's it's uh, it certainly is um, essential for the students and for the and for and for the the uh, district. When when it occurs, when there's a crisis, and, and and then and they see that they've handled it well, it builds a sense of confidence in their in their team internally, saying we can handle this. You know, so even if they don't call our team, there, 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 there's a sense of confidence. Like I've got someone to back me up if I need them. Many times there's been crises in the area, and they tell me, "I want you to put the team on standby, so I'll let people know that we may deploy." But they'll just ask me some questions, and they'll say, "I think we got this," and then they'll. So we're just there to back them up, and many times we don't even deploy. You're doing this in addition to your regular teaching schedule teaching load and what you do as a professor here. Absolutely. I just consider it part of the service. That's great. And it goes to, you've said before, uh, it should be as easy to access a doctor to, uh, or get prescriptions for an illness of the mind as it is for an illness of the body. Today, pretty much anybody who has an illness of the body in some way or form can go to a 
doctor, a primary care doctor, um, but there's still that barrier for various reasons and various ways for uh, mental illness or mental health. Absolutely. You're yeah. addressing that. Yeah. Yeah. There's, 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 there's barriers to, to behavioral health, uh, you know, ac- um, ac- access, and, and we're hoping to remove a good, a good deal of those barriers by, by having the, our providers in, in the field, but, you know, our, our, our therapists, our counselors in the field. Um, there are some barriers also when it comes to medicine, too. There's, 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 even though we are, we are a fairly affluent state, you know, a high SES state in general, there's not a lot of, um, not, really not, a, not, a lot, not enough prescribers, so nurse practitioners, physicians, and physician's assistants who can work with uh, children with behavior disorders. Um, and then specialize in certain in certain aspects. So a lot of times you end up with the pediatricians writing prescriptions, and they're very broad based. You know, they're very highly skilled individuals. I don't mean to undercut them at all, but when you have it's it's different when somebody works with behavior disorders every day, all day long. They know exactly what symptomology presents and what type of medication and what symptomology looks like a different disorder and what other what changes to medication might need to occur. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different caveats, a lot of different reasons why we need this kind of um, of, um, um, of funding infused into our community and where it really needs to grow, not just with the therapists, but additional social workers, psychologists, and additional uh, um, prescribers. Mm-hmm. And so with our, your students who are going through, will be going through this program, is that where you see them becoming uh, therapists and social workers and that kind of um professional yeah our, our program leads to licensed professional counselor the masters in, in professional counseling so they would become therapists in the community we also have the school track program and they'll be, they'll, they'll benefit from it too because mm-hmm. school counselors are also you know trained in these models too and in fact it's so important that they are trained because they're the really the frontline people to deal with um, school-based crises and oftentimes they're the liaison to the prescribers that are in the community so um, the school-based um, counselors will be able to be trained as well. And I think that when we are training both the clinic, clinical track and the school track, we're really making an impact. Mm-hmm. And, of course, every school, not everybody acknowledges it or thinks about it, I guess, but every school has, uh, students in every school have issues. It's not like uh, you can go into <clears throat> even the highest uh, per capita earning school districts and not find something like this. It, it comes from divorce or, um, uh, you know, something you're born with or whatever, but uh, there's a lot of um, these issues in every school district, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what happens, I think, in the in the lower socioeconomic communities, we will see a more overt, you know, crime, higher crime. It's more external um, and it's more visible. But in the higher SE, uh, socioeconomic communities, we will see uh, more sophisticated ways of hiding um, uh, traumatic incidences like um, domestic violence and um, um, white-collar crime, substance abuse, things like that that go on in homes that certainly still impact their children, but it's it's not clearly visible from the outside, you know, mm-hmm. so... Uh, there's still a, quite an impact on the development of the of children as they as they grow and they're exposed to these uh, different traumas. Mm-hmm. We also have a good deal of people who um, maybe didn't originally live in this community, but they're living with an aunt or an uncle, or they're homeless to, to some degree, 
and they're embedded in our in our communities here in Western Connecticut. And certainly, Western Connecticut's a very d- diverse community too. You know, we, we it's not all uh, high and middle uh, socioeconomic status. We've got uh, urban and suburban and rural communities that have, of of all socioeconomic levels. And crime is crime and trauma and crises are present in all those communities. The opioid opioid crisis is a um, a telltale of crisis, right? It's a a sign of crisis. Uh, or, or reactions, I guess, many times to a crisis that uh, somebody's going through. Is this going to be able to help with that too? Yeah, you know, it's it's um, really the the funding is just really broad. It's broad based for the students for their field placements, but we're, but it will help to a degree. Um, you're, you're, I, I like the connection you made because you're right. You know, when somebody is looking. Uh, and, and you know, the, the, when somebody's looking for to substances to help to to to, to uh, for self, oftentimes it's for self medication. You know, so that they, because they or sometimes it's sort of uh, it maybe to help them treat it their own. They self medicate for depression or anxiety by using opioids, and so there um, it is sort of a crisis response. Um, um, people are reaching out looking for something, and. Um, our program currently um, does not have a substance abuse specialization, but um, uh, we are presently working on that so that hopefully within the next year or two, we will have people who will be able to get the master's in, in mental health counseling and get uh, the chemical dependency license along, along with it so that we, there is such a demand right now and we want to um, address that demand. So we're working with... Um, the psychology undergraduate uh, department to try to um, um, uh, offer the courses that they have at the undergraduate level right now at the graduate level for our students so that they can uh, we can address that need. What are your thoughts about this current opioid crisis and uh, that's national and um, how the country might get a handle on it? Wow, that's that's a big one. I mean, I I, I don't it's not an era specialization I have, so it's 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 a little challenging to it to address. I, I I mean I think it's very complex. You know, some people seek out the op- opioids more for pain management. They they they're addicted because of their of their pharmaceuticals, and to a degree, I think the pharmaceuticals have some responsibility in our in our current drug crisis. And then others are experimenting with you know with it when they're when they're young. Just um, and, and and it becomes highly addictive very very quickly, and then they end up you know looking for uh, reinforcements um, on the street, and they're caught up in a world that they had no idea that they'd be caught up in you know just months you know before they when they were clean and sober, and so there's um, and you know to, and and to a degree even though that's not my area of specialization our students are 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 trained to catch that kind of stuff. You know, there, there's risk factors that go into that kind of behavior that where somebody might be more prone to to use substances, you know. And so when we can identify those in a school or we can identify those on a screening tool in a clinic, we're more likely to, re- to when we reach out to them, we're, we're going to reach out earlier before they get they get caught up in that and provide intervention earlier. And perhaps that will be one of the like I think it's a multifaceted, complex problem, so we need a multifaceted, complex solution. Mm-hmm. And I do think that this is going to be one of the steps forward in that in that in finding the solution. Mm-hmm. 
You know, one of the things I find fascinating is that uh, you've got this great program, you've got the attention of the federal government, you've got a significant amount of money, and uh, are really engaged with and helping the community. And you're here out of uh, little Westcon <laughs> and um, uh, doing your good work. Do you think about that sometimes? I mean, it's... Um I, yeah, I do think about that off and on. You know, the, when I when I moved here from Texas years ago, I, I honestly was not um, aware of the Connecticut state system. And uh, um, I, I started working here and I got to know my colleagues and I just um, um, came to really appreciate Western. It's quite a gem. There's really a significant amount of talent here that, that I think is just uh, geographically um, placed well. You know, um, I think that a good deal of the faculty here could easily, you know, be working at a research one institution, top tier schools. Uh, but geographically, this is where we choose to live. And we've got this wonderful institution here where we can provide uh, services to our community and, and education to the students. So I think that we uh, it's often overlooked. It's like the gem that's it's hidden. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, thank you for your work, Dr. Lomas. It's uh, really fascinating and uh, important, I think, and uh, be of great benefit to the community and our students. And uh, congratulations on the recognition you've gotten for it, too. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. So, Barbara, what's going on? Uh, well, right before Thanksgiving break, there's not too much, but there's a lot um, for after Thanksgiving break and a few things like for the last few days. Um, the spot is happening again, the SGA funded one that I have to, um, that I'm in charge of. Uh, it's going to be on November 30th and December 7th, and it's the same like time as always. It's on a Thursday night from 12 to 3 a.m. Um, so there's one, they're both after the break, but the one on December 7th kind of coincides with PAX Winter Wonderland, because um, their Winter Wonderland is December 6th from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., and then our spot is the following day. Um, at night so it's kind of like cool how we're having like kind of coinciding events and everything to make the week nice um and fun and the spot went well the last time you did it yeah right? it went really well actually um so now after that first spot word got around that it went really really well and um choices uh talked to one of our senators that's in charge of uh, the philanthropy committee mm -hmm. and she wanted to talk to her about maybe like collaborating with choices and the student relations committee and the philanthropy committee and everything so we're starting to collaborate on that to make them like bigger and have like more food because last time there wasn't too much food because hmm. everything comes out of the SR budget, which is um, like my budget for student relations. It's 35000 in the beginning of the year for the entire semester. Um, so we just take out of that and to make the spot like bigger and funner, we're kind of trying to collaborate with choices and stuff. And we they're already like helping us out for the 30th and the 7th as well. Um, and we're having um, this DJ on campus that's um it's not DJ Fresh it's DJ something else but it's his name uh he's really he's really cool he was there the first time and it went well so I think it'll be a really cool event to go on further and we're trying to do it more often so next semester you could probably look out for like more spots like more often yeah that'd be cool isn't and choices is a drug and alcohol kind of uh, education office on campus yeah so they're not going to be a downer and talk about lecture about drugs and alcohol at well, the spot are they no because the spot is ba is a safe spot so hmm. you're supposed to go over there if um like because usually thursday nights are the nights that the college students go out and like go drinking or anything and they're like just only if they're only over 21. Yeah, that's what we want them to do. <laughs> or we don't want them. 
weird uh, gray area. But anyway, <laughs> um, the spot is meant to be a safe spot where they could come if they did drink too much or something and they can come and sober up and just have a fun time with their friends. And by the time they leave, it's been three hours since they got there, hopefully, and they're feeling a little bit better. They can like get an Uber or something to the other um, campus or we're even talking about extending shuttles, possibly. Um, it's kind of expensive, so we're still working on that. But um, that that's why she saw a lot of like good in it. Um, Sharon Guck mm-hmm. was really like um, inspired by it, kind of, because she wanted it. She thought that it would they would mean that like students would have something to take up their time instead of going out and doing stupid things. Mm-hmm. So it'd be more of like come to the spot where you know it's safe and like you can just sober up and just have a good time. And there's gonna be a DJ and music. And last time it was Halloween themed. Um, this time we're still working on themes uh, for December 7th, but November 30th is just going to be a basic spot, just dancing, music, food, that kind of thing. But it should be fun. Yeah, it's, that'll be good. Yeah. That is good. And it's kind of like a post-prom. Yeah, I kind of, and, and we're trying to do it like two, maybe even three times a month. Um, so it'll be like pretty, pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Good. Um, also, Pack is also doing Badass Bingo. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you allowed to say badass on the uh, podcast? <laughs> I asked. Oh, you did. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they're having badass bingo uh, Friday, December 1st at 12 uh, p.m. in the Midtown Student Center, room 201. Uh, there's raffles and $1,000 in prizes. So it should be fun. Mm. The one for Fall Bash went really well. Um, they gave out the iPhone X or something. Is it X? Yeah, the iPhone X. Wow. That's a really expensive one. Maybe it was iPhone 8. Is that what? Is it called iPhone? Oh, iPhone 10, they call it. I have no idea. It's <laughs> the Roman numeral 10. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. So they gave out like the newest iPhone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so now um, they're having Bass Bingo again, so it should be fun. Um, also, they have Pack Movie Night, which is on both nights of um, actually one of the nights for the spot. So on November 30th, there's a spot from 12 to 3 a.m. And then right before that, there's the movie night. They're showing the night before, and it's on November 30th at 6 p.m. in the Midtown Student Center Theater. And What's it's, that about? Um, I was told it's like the hangover, but for Christmas. Hmm. Um, not too sure what else about it, but like, it seems pretty fun. Um, it's about like Christmas and Hanukkah or mm-hmm. something like that. It should be cool. All holidays. Pretty sure it's like, it's like funny, like comedy kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, so that's on November 30th at 6 p.m. And there's also one on December 1st at 6 p.m. in the West Side Ballroom. So one on Midtown, one on West Side. And both events are free for students with ID and refreshments are provided, both movie night and the spot. Um, so they also have, PAC is just doing so much. They always do. They're mm-hmm. really great with events, obviously. Um, they have the Radio City Spectacular that I spoke about before. I'm not too sure if tickets are still on sale, but their trip is on December 2nd. Mm. Um, the bus leaves from West Side at 9.30 in the morning and Midtown at 10, and then it leaves New York from at 8 p.m. And for students, it's $30, and for guests, it's $80. So it, the ticket price includes transportation, the Radio City show, and free time in New York City. Um, the tickets went on sale already, but not too sure when they're going off sale. So if you want to go, just run on over to the box office, see if you can get a ticket. And look online too, right? Yeah, yeah, true. Pack. Um... And then there's also, uh, there's a concert the w, on Tuesday, the 21st. Uh, the WCSU Chamber Singers, uh, conducted by Kevin J. Isaacs, and the University Choir, conducted by Corey Grans- 
mm-hmm. show will perform at 8 p.m. in the VPAC concert hall. Um, so that's cool. Yeah. Uh, and you have holiday jazz coming up December 3rd, right? Or uh, there's a bunch of holiday jazz music things going on all month, I think. Yeah, probably. I mean, <laughs> it's Christmas month coming up. So. That's right. Um, and then uh, also on the 21st, there's WCSU men's basketball versus Hamilton College. Um, uh, that's at 4 p.m. in the Feldman Arena at the O'Neill Center. And then the WCSU women's basketball versus Purchase College, and that's at 6 p.m. in the O'Neill Center. Cool. They're both on Tuesday the 21st. So the women have the um, late game. Yes, yes. Which is good. Yeah. Usually it's the opposite, isn't it? They must switch off, but usually historically they put the women's team first when no one can go, and then they have the men's team. So this is nice. They're switching around. Yeah, that's not very fair. Come on. No. Men's rights. (laughs) We worked long and hard for this. Um, But yeah, that's what's going on so far. Um, there are some big events, you know, next semester, but those are still being planned. Things like West Fest and everything, we're still working on it. So nothing um, set in stone yet, but we're all working really hard. So. Yeah. And so you're uh, planning for your big uh, four-day holiday, right, as a student? Have you, are you studying all those four days? Uh, thankfully, no. Actually, uh, my professors just gave all of the workload and all of the assignments for right before. So today I'm actually handing in um, my literature review paper for research methods and that'll be it and then I have one more exam after that and then I'm done for that class Wow! and then basically all my other classes it's basically just like one last assignment or one last um, if not so for the classes that I didn't do assignments before break there are is one exam Mm -hmm. and for the ones that I did do assignments it's pretty much it there's not much left to do it's pretty nice but I've been scrambling because (laughs) There's a lot of things to do. I had two, like, 15-page papers, one due Thursday, one due today. No kidding. So it's been tough, but, you know, college students have to, like, deal with it. <laughs> That's right. And you already had your midterms, right? Yes, yes. You got all A's? Um, yeah, actually. Good. <laughs> I we'll keep checking on you. Yeah, I've actually, I only got back four of the five, so I think I got all A's. I don't know. I don't know about the last one. Professor's kind of slacking. <laughs> yeah, well, let me know if you need me to uh, talk to that professor. <laughs> okay, will do. <laughs> Give him a talking to. All right, thanks, Barbara, for the roundup, and we'll uh, be back after the holiday break, right? All right, sounds good. Thanks, good. Thanks. I want to thank our producers, Scott Volpe and Pete Puccio, who make sure these podcasts are available to our many listeners. As a special offer this week and to help celebrate the holidays, we are making access to all WCSU podcasts absolutely free. It's a Black Friday special available through the weekend. As you are stuck in traffic on the way to Thanksgiving dinner or on an all-day shopping trip, stay calm by plugging in the dulcet tones of WCSU 411 or even The Compassionate Achiever. Don't forget, you can subscribe to these podcasts on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher. Look for WCSU Media and stay up to date with all editions of the podcast. Leave a comment or share. You can also comment on Twitter at WCSU411. For Barbara Villegas, Scott Volpe, Pete Puccio, and me, Paul Steinmetz, happy Thanksgiving from Western Connecticut State University.